As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The race is on, and Valtteri Bottas finally had his moment with his first victory of the season in a wet Turkish Grand Prix. But the World Championship lead changed hands yet again, with Max Verstappen second place, giving him an eight-point gain over Lewis Hamilton. But did Mercedes make a mistake by not letting Hamilton run to the end without a pit stop? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer that question and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, hello. I know we only parted company about 10 minutes ago. Can you just tell me how you've managed to make your hotel room a sensible colour? Because we're in different rooms in the same hotel, and... You seem to have sensible colouring, and I've got some kind of weird purple mood lighting. Yeah, I didn't. I was a bit worried about exactly what kind of podcast it is that we're planning to record, Ed, based on the mood lighting that you've got going on. Um, I went over to the uh, to the light switch, and uh, for some reason, you can change the colour of the lighting in these rooms. However, uh, what I have failed to do is work out how to keep the aircon on or off. So it went off, so I thought it was okay, and then literally 30 sec- about 30 seconds after pressing record, the aircon seems to have turned back on again. So I, I do apologise if that's causing anyone any problems. Mark Hughes, obviously you're watching this from a distance. We're, we're in Istanbul Airport. I imagine this isn't, this isn't a bad race given the weather to have been watching from a distance. Yeah, actually, uh, the, the weather was really, really nice here, unusually, in, in Manchester and um, yeah, it, it seemed a little bit bizarre watching those grey skies live on the on the feed, but uh, yeah, it, the, the weather certainly livened things up again, and it seems to be a bit of a theme in these latter season uh, sort of Europe races, doesn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. I like these out of season races. That's ideal. We don't need them all to be in the summer. F1 doesn't have to chase the sun ender, see, we can have a few curveballs thrown by this. I must admit, as I said to Scott this afternoon, this was like a day here in Istanbul where. It just never got going. It kind of had that early morning gloom and a little bit of rain and mist and everything. And it just never, 
broke through properly. So uh, one of those days, but it certainly made for, a, for an interesting Grand Prix. So we're going to uh, pile straight into it. And Mark, we're going to make our rare trip to Valtteri Bottas' victory corner shortly, but given the World Championship is at stake, the big talking point is inevitably the wisdom or lack thereof of Lewis Hamilton's pit stop at the end of lap 50. So how did Hamilton's run from 11th on the grid after that 10-place grid penalty play out? And as Danny Elliott from the Race Members Club asks, did Mercedes drop the ball again with Hamilton's late pit stop? He also suggests that Mercedes can be prone to errors as a team when under pressure. Um, the pit stop was absolutely necessary by then. He was going to be devoured. The, 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 the ties were finished by then. The error, if anything, was uh, not coming in earlier. And when they called him in on lap 41, in hindsight, uh, that would probably have got him a podium. He wasn't going to catch um, Bottas and Verstappen. Um, he may well have beaten Leclerc. Um, they brought him in at the last possible moment just before he would have come out behind Gasly as well. And they left him out at that last possible moment just in case, because it was about two laps later than than they realised that the tyres were gone. Um, but it was, it, it was those extra two laps were just in case there was a safety car or a VSC that would have rescued that. Um, but he was past the point of no return by then. They, if he'd come in earlier, um, on when they'd originally asked him to, it it would have played probably played out like that, with the tantalising possibility that had the track just switched around enough to get onto slicks, then he may have been able to win the race. And so there was that element of gamble there. That wasn't uh, the one that they were choosing to take, but they rationalised it when Lewis said he would prefer to stay out. They thought, well, okay, it's a a gamble, but yeah, they were happy enough with that gamble. But it didn't didn't work out, as we know. It didn't work out for Charles Leclerc, who'd um, tried a similar similar thing and was was leading for a time. And it just, yeah, just the the range was just a little bit uh, too much, a few few laps too many for the the worn inters. It was a a complicated picture because you had to go slowly on the new inters because if you didn't on the drying track they quickly grained up and made you hopelessly slow and that's what happened to both Leclerc and Hamilton as they went fast as they rejoined uh, that that just worsened their problems and um, Perez had earlier a few laps earlier um Pitted at the conventional time, and he brought his inters in very nicely and very you know, gradually, which is what they demand. And hence, he was able to nick that final podium place. But yeah, there was a few, there's a few parts of Lewis's race which were more difficult than there might have been. And the first one was getting um, stuck behind Yuki Zenoda uh, for the first few laps. Uh, he got past uh, Seb Vettel easily enough, but uh, Yuki was. Um, Obviously, he's in the opposing camp, and I'm sure that was part of the thinking in Lewis's mind. But he was treat; it looked like he was treating him with kid gloves a bit. There was a there was a moment where he could have got past, I think, on the second lap into turn four, and it looked like he'd done enough. But it, it would have required him to sort of lean on him a bit, and he he chose not to. And which is, you know, you're you're trying to win a championship. It's 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 a pretty, you know, it's it's, it's a potential hazard. It's it's a sort of flashing red light hazard that. Going wheel to wheel with Sonoda in conditions of uh, iffy visibility, and he's in the opposing camp. 
And then there was uh, later, he, he did eventually get past, and then later on, the, but that cost him about 12 seconds. And then later on, he almost got past Perez, but again, it's from the opposing camp, and although they had a nice little dice, um, Lewis didn't really force the issue there either. So I think, yeah, they, they, they were the, the moment, the decisive moments in his race. Yeah, it's interesting. The argument would have been that Mercedes could have been more attacking by leaving Hamilton out, but they'd already effectively been more uh, attacking. I asked Toto Wolff about this after the race, and he said that they they felt there was more to gain from what he called the more dynamic variant of the strategy, which it was to leave him out and either hope for that transition to slicks you described, or maybe to make the uh, intermediates last. One thing I did do, uh, I'm sort of two-thirds of the way through it for a piece for the race website, because Ocon went through the whole race without a stop, he finished 10th on the one set of inters. I thought I'd benchmark Hamilton's pace compared to Ocon and kind of create a notional Hamilton based on what pace he would have been relative to Ocon to see where he ends up. It's quite interesting, actually, because he ends up with, with this kind of imaginary race time that's actually the same position but it's, it's actually fractionally quicker by a couple of seconds. And he's like a second and a half behind Leclerc or something. So it shows how marginal it was in terms of that pace. But I think in that, in that scenario, you can't necessarily blame them for doing it. At the time after the race, I felt perhaps they, they could have uh, taken that risk. But yeah, it was, a, uh, it, it, was a, it was a tricky one to take. Although I suspect the tyres would, uh, would probably have lasted. And at worst, he'd have probably slipped, uh, slipped down to pretty much where he was in the end. So uh, yeah, a very, very uh, unusual scenario to have that in a, in a Formula One race where you can uh, even think about going uh, non-stop. Now, Scott, inevitably there's a question about Hamilton's change of the V6 engine itself. Oscar Robledo asks, should Mercedes have introduced a complete power unit rather than just the combustion engine? And this refers to the engine change that happened at the start of the weekend. So what can you tell us about that? Uh, well, they could have done, uh, but ultimately the other power unit elements aren't of a concern to Mercedes. Um, Toto Wolff described them as uh, behaving absolutely splendidly and well within their mileage, the hybrid elements. So your your turbocharger, MGUH, MGUK. The problem that they've got, the question mark that they've got is within the internal combustion engine. So we had that confirmed by the fact that Mercedes only needed to change the ICE. This wasn't a change that Mercedes wanted to make because Lewis was on, went on to qualify fastest. He should have started from pole position. So we can infer from that that Mercedes only made a change here because they felt they needed to. They needed to be proactive in terms of adding another power unit component to their, their pool and better to, to manage what they've got rather than risk it and, and have a retirement. So we know that Mercedes was coming into this being cautious. If they had problems across the power unit, they would have introduced multiple components. But the fact that they felt that they could get away with only changing the ICE shows that it's within the V6 that they've got this problem. Well, well, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Toto Wolf described it as unusual noises, I think, from the from the V6 that they they didn't fully understand and that they can't address because they're past the point now of making design changes to the actual physical engine this year. Um, so the idea was the only thing you need to change is the ICE. So only change the ICE. That means that Lewis only has a 10 place penalty and he's able to have the race that we saw him have today. Obviously it didn't quite pay off in terms of a podium or anything like that, but, but, but it, it absolutely could have done. 
And if Lewis had taken a full set of power unit components, he'd have been starting at the back. So he would have been probably seven, eight, nine places further back, depending on exactly how that situation would have played out. So this this made the most sense because this was um, Mercedes basically addressing the risk that exists within the power unit and then taking the smallest possible penalty they need to within that. And obviously, this has had a big impact on the, the championship, Mark. Verstappen's retaken the lead. He's now six points ahead of Hamilton. Elliot Crossan asks if it's safe to say after Russia and Turkey that Verstappen is no longer the more unlucky driver this season. He points out that across the two races where engine penalties have applied, so that includes Verstappen's run to second at Sochi after taking a new power unit, Verstappen has gained a point. Yeah, he's had um, quite a good run. I mean, it, it, uh, if it wasn't for the late ra- rain shower in Sochi, he would have been looking at a a sixth or seventh place rather than a second. And he, he pounced on that opportunity and, you know, it was his own call. Um, so it's not entirely down to luck, but there's an element of luck and the, the, the rain appearing at the exact right time for him. So, yeah, I think um, in terms of the, the rub of the green, he's, he's um, having quite a good run. His concern now is more the pace of the, the car relative to the, to the Mercedes because it's... Um, it's just had another. The Red Bull just had another problematical weekend where it, they they couldn't get it into its sweet spot. It's um, every all every other team made big gains on it uh, compared to the seasonal average, and uh, it had a big understeer problem throughout. More in qualifying than the race, but it, it was still there that deficit. And yeah, that's um, that, that's second time that's happened. We've had it. We saw it in Hungary as well. So. The Mercedes seems to be a more, um, at the moment, it's certainly in the second half of the season, it's uh, less peaky. It seems to have a more uh, accessible um, window of, of, of operating. And so quite often it's um, it ends up as the, the quicker car. So this has got to be a big concern to Verstappen. And that's what, that's what he was saying after the race. He was saying he was quite happy with the way his weekend had gone and quite happy to be second because he could, just didn't have the pace of Valtteri. He tried to put a bit of pressure on and Valtteri responded. And he said at that moment, he, he knew that was it. So he was just, you know, really concentrating on maximizing the result and bringing it home second at that point. But he's, as he said, we, we, we've got to, we've got to step it up somehow. We've got to step up the performance of the car somehow because um, the pattern is not, um, not very good. I think I'll also skip ahead one question to one from Simon T. I was going to throw at you, Mark, which is asking if Mercedes has made some sort of step recently or if what we're seeing is just track-specific. And it's a good question because Mercedes has had the quickest car at Monza, Sochi, and now Turkey. So what's the broader picture beyond just the Istanbul weekend? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it over the season, if you between the two cars, since Silverstone, since the Silverstone upgrade, which was a very good upgrade, it's the, the Mercedes is been pretty sweet and the red bull at its peak has been faster we saw it as recently as zandvoort but yeah it, it's um i would say the the merc hasn't i mean there's nothing new got on the mercs and silverstone um they, they play about with it. i mean there was a, a different front wing they tried on hamilton's car this weekend on the friday but it's it's been trialed in practice sessions earlier in the season as well there's, there's nothing actually new gone on the car that's been raced. So it's just they are, that Silverstone upgrade was a good one and they've just really got into the, the window of the car um, more easily than, than Red Bull seemed to be able to with theirs. 
yeah, it sets the stage very well for the six race run in the rapid fire six race run in that that's coming up. And Scott, the other question we had from Simon T. The drivers who stopped with around 10 laps to go, so this was basically Hamilton, uh, Leclerc obviously was a little bit before that, could they have gone on to softs rather than intermediates to avoid going through that overheating and graining process, or was the track still the same as when Vettel pitted for slicks and had to come straight back in earlier? Uh, I don't think the track was quite the same as when Seb made his, uh, frankly, disastrous decision to pit for slicks, uh, but it was still too wet for, for slicks. I think the middle sector looked like the best because... Because when uh, Leclerc and Hamilton were trying to hang on on their very worn intermediates, it was the middle sector that they were actually able to sort of crack on at a, a, a good pace. They were they were quicker than the, the the guys who had stopped for for quite a while, and it was sector one and sector three that they were struggling with most. Which I I assume is because that was where it was slipperiest uh, for, for for longest. So every every driver I spoke to afterwards. Uh, said that they never considered switching to softs uh, or to slicks. Sorry, late, late on because it was ju- it was just too wet. So um, yeah, I think uh, I think the the experience that Seb went through um, made everyone aware that the track needed to be an awful lot drier, and there were just parts of it that that weren't drying quickly enough. Essentially, yeah, the problem was the um, as well as the, the standing water. At- um, several parts of the track, it was the the temperature. So even um, we saw in qualifying, it, it it takes a long time, even on a dry, cold track, to get the um, the softs up to temperature. And when you've got standing water there, it just completely destroys what temperature you've just built up. So you'd you'd never get there if 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 the if there wasn't a proper dry line all the way through the circuit. You would never get there. You'd just start building the temperature up and then it would just cascade straight back down again as soon as you went through the water. So you have to start it again. And that that's just how it would it would have played out. And you'd just get into a, a sort of downward spiral and the, the, the soft tire would never have reached its uh, working temperature. Yeah, I think uh, there was a temptation to have softs. And obviously, Gary Anderson during the race was, was keen for people to look at it. But it's just such a strange set of conditions and the track surface and the way things were there just means it, it wasn't quite going to work. Well, Scott, we're not going to let you visit Valtteri Bottas' Sympathy Corner on this podcast for once. We're sending you off to Valtteri Bottas' Victory Corner, if you can find it, given it's just over a year since you last had to go there. But while he didn't take pole position on pace, because Hamilton, of course, was quicker in qualifying, but had the 10-place grid penalty. Still a very well-deserved win, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I feel like it's almost, uh, well, let's say payback for Monza because I feel like he should have been in a position to to fight for the win at that Grand Prix, but he had his grid penalty there, one of many grid penalties there. Um, and also redemption for what was, um, well, he's won here now. So I, I can, I've, it was a pretty embarrassing performance from Valtteri in the 2020 Turkish Grand Prix. He even said today, uh, you know, he lost count of the number of times he spun last year at Istanbul. Obviously, very different conditions, but he just had a miser- miserable race, spun five or six times. Um, and he's never been the most, especially in the Mercedes era, he's never really been the most convincing driver in these conditions. So I think probably, I'd know if, I don't know if, I can't speak for Mark, but I know that Ed, you and I had sort of doubts that, that Bottas was actually going to pull this off, but... He he drove really well. Um, uh, Andrew Shovelin at, at Mercedes said that uh, suggested this was actually um, Bottas. One, I think he I think he might have even called it Bottas's best race. Um, very impressive, well deserved. 
made I think I think he made one mistake in the entire Grand Prix and that was just a snap coming out of the first corner I think during the opening stint which he gathered up and generally kept Verstappen at arm's length looked totally in control really commanding performance and I think all things considered I I don't think it's his best win because I really rate his 2019 USGP win when on the day Lewis was trying to seal the title it was I think it's the only time Valtteri's had to go head-to-head with Lewis and actually prevailed and come out with a win it's like today the caveat against the win is that Lewis was out of the picture so Valtteri didn't have to beat him in a straight fight that's the only reason I wouldn't put it top, really. But I think what I think Valtteri's on. I think that was his tenth win, wasn't it? So nice round number, and just really nice to see him get that win before um, he leaves Mercedes. This might prove to be the last opportunity he has to 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 win a win a Grand Prix. He's obviously got opportunities to the end of the season, but in terms of one right in front of him, that if you do everything, you'll get the victory. This is very possibly the best chance he, he, he would have for the rest of his career after he moves to Alfa Romeo. So, yeah, really nice to see him tick that one off. Yeah, I like those two um, fastest laps that he did right at the end. And there were really were very fast laps, were like um, almost two seconds quicker than anybody else had gone. Just to say, you know, I had I had this well in hand. I had a lot in hand. I could have gone a lot faster if, if I needed to. This wasn't ever in doubt. It was just his little message there, and it was nice to see. This was. It felt like it felt like the message that Valtteri thought he delivered last year at Sochi when he won, and he was sort of quite uh, indignant about some of the criticism he'd he'd got. And it was like, yeah, but that wasn't that wasn't really the the emphatic. Ha! I've showed you. You thought it was Valtteri, but but this one was. This was a a lovely reminder of just what a class driver he can be when he leads from the front. Yeah, and I think when you get a driver like. Sometimes you have you have question marks over his ability to manage the race, etc. We've talked about his struggles when it comes to improvising and that kind of thing. But in, in difficult conditions, he really well, was a, immaculate today. We know on his day how good a driver Bottas is. And there will have been that added pressure if he will have known this might be his last chance to get a win. Toto Wolff says he will have a chance to win. But again, but he's only got six races left and Hamilton's always going to be the one that they need to win. So it might even be that Bottas, if he does get another chance to win, he'll have to give it away. So it was important to make the most of this slightly unusual situation for him. But Mark, another driver who hasn't had a great run of success of late was also on the podium in third place, Sergio Perez. Past Charles Leclerc along the way, Jay Kaufman asks if Perez has now finally definitively paid off for Red Bull, where Albon and Gasly could not have done, and cites the fact that Perez went wheel to wheel to stay ahead of Hamilton as absolute class. So does it show the difference he can make in the title runner? Well, Perez has always been a pretty good race driver. He's he's, he's always been particularly good in defence, and you saw, you know you're going to get absolutely no quarter given if you're trying to get past Perez, and I think um, that played a part in Lewis's thinking as well. So no, there's never been any doubt about um, his his uh, abilities in battle. Is the the problem has been his qualifying pace, and this is it means that typically this season it's meant that by the time he has got past the cars that he should never have qualified behind in the first place, he's quite out often out of any strategic use to Red Bull in in that he can't interfere with the the Mercedes races. So this is. Um, this is a problem that they had with Gasly and Albon, and it's 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 been there many times this year with Perez too. But 
when he gets in a position where everything has gone, you know, smoothly and it's it's you know that things have played out uh, in in a nice way. Um, yeah, there's there's no doubt he can get the job done in terms of uh, racecraft and uh, looking after the tires. And I mean, the, the crucial part of that podium today was. Um, how well he brought the the new inters in, and, and you saw that contrasted with how Leclerc brought them in and killed them instantly, and 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 probably a pretty angry Lewis did the same, did exactly the same thing. So that 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 was um, a big part of why Perez was able to to ultimately beat Leclerc and get that podium. What was impressive about Perez, I thought, was the the defense of Hamilton was 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 great and had already done enough to to obviously blunt Hamilton's charge but it it also uh gave Red Bull a chance to improvise and and bring Verstappen into for that pit stop because the 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 time loss that it caused for Perez and Hamilton opened up a lovely little window for Verstappen and and Red Bull dropped him in it made got that pit stop out of the way but um I think Perez has scored something like 16 points over the last six races and he scored 15 in, in, in this one. He really wasn't doing a good enough job for, for Red Bull. There were elements of bad luck in, the, in that run, absolutely. But yeah, his qualifying performances haven't been good enough. But I think this is, and I, might, I don't want to be too generous to, to, to Checo, but I think this is the fourth time this year he's done the job Red Bull needed him to do. Obviously, Azerbaijan, he was right there playing back up to Verstappen. He did a great job at, in, in France as well. And he was doing the job in Russia. He was putting together a very good Russian Grand Prix, and then obviously uh, it, it went awry in the with the with the pit stop. I think he had a role to play in that. To that that's important to state, and and then he's done it here as well. So that's 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 obviously he 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 had qualified a bit further back, but he's putting together a good race and held off Hamilton. So I think he was playing the wingman role absolutely fine today. So I'd say that's the fourth time this year. It's still not good enough. You, you still need more more than that. He needs to be doing it far more often than not. But it's still, I mean, four times in one season from Perez is more than I can remember Alex and Pierre doing across their two full seasons combined. To be honest, that Alex only really managed it last year in Abu Dhabi in the in in the final race. So, yeah, Perez is just sort of, he, I think he's getting away with the fact that he's got a better Red Bull than those those two had. But I, I want to give him credit where he where where it is due. He he's put together another good race today. It's just I need to see this on a regular basis now. And hopefully the fact that he's done it back to back now, Russia and Turkey piece together the strong Sundays, lets him finish the season on a high. But he still needs to sort himself out on Saturdays because even in both of those races, he's having to come a little bit he's having to come from a bit further back than he wants to be. And we have talked about before the potential of the number two drivers to be the kingmakers. You only have to look at the championship standings to see that right now it's Bottas who is ensuring that Mercedes are leading the Constructors' Championship. He scored 42 points more than Sergio Perez has. So that's making the big difference. And as we get into this this final half dozen races and there's less room to manoeuvre, they could have the swing vote when it comes to this. So I'm really interested to see how those two get on in, in in their battle but Perez is certainly better a better driver than particularly in recent races he's been able to show and it's it's good he I think he needed that boost of a podium and I think in fact both of them did so it was it was kind of a day for the number twos but we should because we've only mentioned him in passing talk about Verstappen briefly Mark it was just a really good tidy drive from Verstappen wasn't it the car probably wasn't there to to win 
he was unflustered. He didn't get carried away or try anything uh, too aggressive. He just got the result that was in the car. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, it, uh, it's 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 the sort of drive he used to do all the time when the Red Bull wasn't um, as good as it is now. Um, you know, he, he'd he'd be almost resigned to the fact that he, he'd probably be third. He might be able to beat Valtteri in the second um, for the last couple of years, and it, he always did that. He always delivered. Um, and this was just like a, a, a throwback to to that. Really, it was the the car wasn't just wasn't on the pace this weekend. So um, he maximised what there was there, and uh, yeah, probably with one eye to the title. But even even without that, it's the sort of drive you expect of him if if, if he's not in a you know a car is uh, that's capable of winning. Yeah, and it, ultimately, it's the drive of someone who's fighting for a championship, isn't it? He he banked the points. You've got to know when you can win when you can finish second and play the hand accordingly. He did that absolutely in Turkey. He didn't really uh, put a foot wrong. So uh, a, a good performance for him. And just interesting that, uh, as we mentioned before, across those two power unit change races for Hamilton and Verstappen, they've actually not had a big difference on the, the championship order, actually a one-point gain for Verstappen, which is probably a good thing because when it comes to the end of the season, we won't be able to point at these swings down to the, the power unit changes but there's lots more Turkish Grand Prix to talk about but let's have a quick chat about NordVPN. A VPN is a virtual private network, the perfect way to protect yourself when you're online. VPNs are part of the tools of the trade for us, given how much we travel and the hundreds of unsecured Wi-Fi services we use in media centres, airports, hotels and the like. But you don't need to be on the road all the time for it to be essential if you really care about online security. Using a VPN hides your IP address and allows you to change your virtual location in order to access geo-locked websites. We've used it in the past in one particular country where emails and social media are difficult to access, and that's just one of the many uses for NordVPN. And actually, that's originally the reason I got a VPN subscription, although subsequently I've learned a lot more about the wider advantages, particularly in terms of internet security. NordVPN, high speed as well, which would be a deal breaker if it wasn't, because some other services in the past have been somewhat clunky and have just made using them difficult. But no problem here. I've got my VPN active right now, and the podcast, no problems at all, flying along. In fact, Scott, you recently signed up with NordVPN and have been enthusiastic about that aspect in recent weeks. So a satisfied customer testimony. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've used a different VPN provider in, in, in the past and I've never used it for anything like streaming anything or, or a video call like this or anything like that because it's always been too slow and it's always just kind of been a needs must situation. But I have to admit, the Turkish Grand Prix was the, the first chance I had to, to, to use it and it was honestly great i didn't really notice that i had one on when i was uh, i was using it to join the video calls that we have to take part in for the faa press conference and team sessions i've got it running now because i've now i've just got it to automatically connect now whenever it's connected to the uh connected to, to to the internet so absolutely zero issues for me on, on on that front worked absolutely perfectly and i'm also learning a little bit more uh about the sort of wider benefits of a, a of a VPN, especially with NordVPN, you get the the NordPass password management side of things, which I have to admit I am woefully bad at when it comes to my internet security. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty pleased I've checked it out. 
you hit upon an important point there as well, because it is straightforward to use, despite the fact it sounds quite complicated. You can jump between 60-odd countries to access content and safely use public Wi-Fi without any security concerns, just the press of a button. This is all thanks to creating that famous encryption tunnel, which is my favourite VPN-related phrase. If all sounds difficult, it really couldn't be easier to use. It's just there in the background giving you the security you need. So if it sounds like a VPN is for you and it's essential for anyone who values online security, head to nordvpn.com forward slash the race. And that's the race with no hyphen. So just nordvpn.com forward slash the race. Our special offer is for a limited time and allows you to get a massive 73% off a two-year NordVPN plan and a bonus four months on top of that as well. And it's no risk because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head for nordvpn.com forward slash the race. Let's turn our attention back now to the Turkish Grand Prix. Scott Ferrari proved pretty quick this weekend. Leclerc ended up in fourth place. Carlos Sainz started at the back and came through to finish eighth. Of course, he had the new hybrid system, hence the penalty. Where's that pace come from, particularly relative to its rival for third place in the Constructors' Championship? McLaren, which had Lando Norris seventh and Daniel Ricciardo down in 13th after a difficult weekend. Well, I think the extent of the pace this weekend came as a surprise to even the team. Certainly Charles Leclerc, after qualifying, didn't really have a, an obvious answer for it. Um, I think it's just, we, we've seen it through the, through the year, with especially Ferrari and, uh, and, and McLaren. They have certain circuit characteristics and conditions, tyre selections, etc. can inf- influence their form quite a lot. They can either be, as uh, Ferrari was, head of that, uh, midfield group, thir- third fastest uh, team, getting in amongst it actually with Mercedes and Red Bull, exactly like we saw with uh, McLaren winning at Monza and then taking pole and almost winning in in Russia. So this was basically McLaren's turn to fall down that little pack. I don't think they like the sort of longer apex corners that Istanbul has, um, and they weren't really having much joy on the softs either in in, in qualifying. And then Lando Norris was just stuck in the Grand Prix. Uh, whereas Ferrari were were, were pretty happy, um, the the performance was um, was absolutely there. Leclerc did a great job to you know cause trouble with um, Bottas and Verstappen, and Sainz put in an absolutely glorious drive. Some really feisty moves on his way up the order, and he could have even potentially finished higher had he not had a slow pit stop that I think cost him five or six seconds and meant I think he rejoined behind Ocon and he wouldn't have been behind Ocon so there was a lot of lost race time there bottled up behind the Alpine so could have been, could have been even better Sainz said there'll be an element of what if about his weekend but the main thing is to move on and basically the 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 takeaway from for, from this weekend from for Ferrari is that despite having one of their cars forced to start knowing going into the weekend knowing they'd start at the back because of engine penalties they've come away taking a nice chunk out of McLaren in the Constructors Championship so yeah this was a really good weekend for them. Yeah, and both drivers ended up doing slightly different kinds of races. Leclerc obviously was up at the front throughout, ended up fourth. He had that one mistake when he when he locked up and had a brief off on his uh, first set of tyres, whereas Sainz was having to charge through. And Mark, Oscar Robledo asks where Sainz now ranks against Leclerc. We can probably do a deep dive on that at a later date, but certainly the, the kind of quick version is it's a well-balanced lineup, isn't it, as this weekend showed? Yeah, it's pretty strong. Um, you'd say nominally Leclerc's... Um, Edging it, he's he's usually the quicker qualifier, though not always. Um, I think science gives them um, some good direction technically. They get on very well. Um, they both contribute 
and pushing the 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 car development in a similar direction. Um, I think sometimes science is a little bit more articulate and so is quicker to to give a direction. But uh, yeah, I think it's very very well matched, and it's just it's it's science's first season there, so. Um, I think we can expect him to to improve as time goes on. It's um, yeah. I mean, he's he's had a few incidents. He hasn't had the the cleanest of runs. He's sometimes had, you know um, errors and spins and things like that in practice sessions. But generally, I'd say it's uh, yeah. I think it's a very uh, well well matched and um, nicely balanced lineup. Yeah, he's kind of doing the job that I think we probably expected him to do because I think we all had fairly high hopes for for Carlos Sainz. But let's get on to other matters, Scott. Pierre Gasly, he finished sixth, but only after serving that five-second penalty. It's pit stop for tapping Fernando Alonso into a spin on the first lap. That contact came when Gasly was in the middle lane, so to speak, with Perez on his inside and Alonso coming around the outside. Inevitably, a little understeer for the Alfa Tari, which led to the contact. We've had several questions on this. Oscar Robledo asks if the penalty was too severe on Gasly, with Richard Rowe asking if the tolerance of first lap incidents has been reduced. So can you unpack this for us, please? Yeah, I'll answer that first question uh, first and say I think this was too harsh a penalty on, on, on Gasly. He had going into the corner, which is far more relevant than the position of the cars on the exit, which is what the stewards were focusing on. Going into the corner, he had Perez on the inside and Alonso trying to force it around the outside. So I think he was sandwiched. They, the stewards claimed he wasn't. I think he was by definition going into the corner. And he has understeered and he might have taken a bit too much speed in than, than he should have. And that it's, there's been contact, but I don't think he's... I don't think he's done anything stupid going into turn one. So, and I don't think he's wholly to blame. So I, I just think it's a bit unfair to to have hit him with that penalty and with the explanation they gave, which leads me into the answering the second question, which is the stewards basically felt that Gasly didn't leave Alonso enough space on the outside and they felt he was entirely to blame for the clash. And that's the key to him being punished when we have had first lap incidents that tend to result in no further action, which I think is what the question is is referring to the FIA has effectively tightened its let them race principles this year this isn't something that they've done for this weekend this has been the case all year long they've basically decided that incidents on the opening lap where a driver is wholly to blame will likely result in a penalty so that's why Gasly and also Alonso for his separate incident with Mick Schumacher a few corners later uh, was given a five second penalty Um, and conversely when Max Verstappen runs Lewis Hamilton off the road at Imola or Monza that's not a penalty because in the eyes of the stewards there's a bit of it takes two to tango about those races Hamilton's the aggressor on the outside so um, there's uh, no driver is more than just predominantly to, to blame therefore the leniency kicks in for those incidents I really don't see the difference between Hamilton trying to go around the outside of Verstappen at Monza for example and Alonso trying to go around the outside here the only difference I see is that the contact is because the car on the outside doesn't move out the way the contact is severe and it spins the car on the outside and you could say that that maybe should influence the the outcome but the FIA have always said that the consequences don't so I just yeah I I I at least I at least understand the logic they've applied so I understand where the penalty has come from and maybe that 
reduced leniency when someone's wholly to blame is something that maybe not a lot of people were aware of. But I don't think I don't think it's been correctly applied in these circumstances because I just don't think Pierre was wholly to blame for that. Yeah, I just look at what Gasly could have done, and ultimately, because Alonso made the move quite sort of late, he was legitimate. There's nothing wrong with what Alonso did. He was very unfortunate, but Gasly was already kind of into the corner, understeering tricky conditions, and then kind of Alonso's coming around the outside. So I just don't really see how he could have avoided that, other than not having a little bit of front end sliding in low grip conditions on the first lap with slightly cold tyres. Very, very tricky. And Mark, there are a couple of questions about the wider context of this. Danny Elliott asks if the penalties are just getting too soft and silly and argues that Gasly had no option other than to tap Alonso. While Mike Meredith asks if you think Alonso's recent criticism of stewarding decisions had any bearing on the decision to give Gasly a five-second penalty, as he also sees it as very harsh. <laughs> yeah, it, it was harsh. Um, I, I can't um, get into the the minds of the stewards to try and work out if they um, retained their impartiality in that decision. I have no idea. But uh, yeah, I, I think for me, it was just a, a recent incident. You know, they, they, they're not, there's no way that they were, um, one or the other of them was determined to uh, uh, risk an accident on the first lap just for the sake of, of, of being obstinate. It was, it's just, you know, they, they they came together and were each trying to, you know, navigate their way through a tricky, gripless conditions, first corner of a, a wet race. It's just it, it happens. That's just what happens. And to um to this mentality that every time there's an incident there has to be a blame is just for me. It's uh, <laughs> I want to use a, a, a ruder word, but for me it's just it's simplistic nonsense. It it it, it shouldn't be there. That that obligation should just not be there it should have no part in this in the sport yeah it's getting a bit where there's a where there's blame where there's blame there's a claim as it were and blame always has to be found but as scott explained there was kind of a rationale behind it even if we don't uh, agree with it but scott uh, it was a decent weekend for lance stroll he finished ninth having been ninth fastest in qualifying that was a good effort given aston martin is still a marginal q3 car but he was among those who had a relatively straightforward race in terms of talking points he just did exactly what he had to do a, a good effort so let's move on to esteban ocon in 10th place a very rare no-stop race did that surprise you I guess based on my pre-race expectations, yes, because I would kind of expected the Inters to have been chewed through a little bit too much, and the only um, and the uh, and the reason for that would be because there wouldn't be rain and it would dry, and therefore we'd be switching to slicks. I kind of thought it would be the change to a fresh set of Inters because it was still damp, and then maybe a late change to to slicks. Um, that said. Once it got to about lap 40, I was thinking the, the the guys who haven't stopped just run to the end now because the 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 window to to stop is is closing quite soon. Um, you had obviously Leclerc in, in, inherit the the lead. Hamilton got into the podium positions. Ocon was up inside the the the, the top ten, and you're just thinking, well, the pace looks manageable. I, I would roll the dice in this situation. That would be my personal preference. So, yeah, once it got to that stage of the race, it didn't surprise me. At that point, Ocon's got absolutely nothing to lose. He's potentially hanging on for a point, which isn't a bad situation to be in at all, um, given there was so much stagnation in, in, in the midfield. So once it got to that stage, I think, yeah, you just hang on for, for what you can. And 
I actually think, although obviously he only just hung on for that point, that was kind of exaggerated by his penultimate. I think it was his penultimate lap, wasn't it? That it was a good two or three seconds slower than it than it should have been because I think he had to move aside for 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 Bottas. So uh, it was obviously very touch and go, close to a to a failure, but it paid off. So in this situation, fortune favoured the brave. Yeah, he did have to back off to let Bottas pass in turn four. And that was quite a big lift. Uh, so he lost quite a bit of time doing that. But yeah, Ocon himself after the race said he felt he was one lap away from the tyres failing. But they're always one lap away from the tyres failing, aren't they? That's what the drivers always say when something's marginal uh, at the end. So I don't think we, we we can really be sure. But interestingly, Ocon himself said he had kind of half an idea even before the race going into this, because basically last year he pitted really, really early after the the contact with Bottas on the first lap and then basically ran to the end. So he had that stored in his memory. So he said it was always kind of there as he was working through the race, the possibility of doing this. And it just worked for them. I think he was seven tenths ahead of Alfa Romeo's Antonio Giovinazzi, which, Mark, brings us on to Alfa Romeo. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi were, were 12th and 11th, respectively. So Giovinazzi just missing out on the points. Giovinazzi, in fact, disregarded a team order to let Raikkonen pass in the closing stages, which might preten- which might potentially have prevented him from being able to overhaul Ocon. But it, it's once again a missed opportunity for that team, isn't it? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I guess um, it, it is that um, partnership is splitting up. Uh, it, it, the the normal um, codes are, are maybe uh, not not being adhered to. Uh, there was a um, very terse exchange between Raikkonen and the team during practice when his drinks bottle was leaking. And it, it, it really does seem as though uh, Kimmy's not in the happiest place there at um, in these last few races. So, uh, yeah, it's probably, I think, um, they're just marking time in that uh, partnership now. Yeah, there's just a lot of little frayed ends and rough edges and various other metaphors for that kind of thing at Alfa Romeo this year. They've, they've missed out on a lot of opportunities just to things not quite being right. But it, it was interesting. Maybe Giovinazzi just felt he's fighting for his future. So uh, he wanted to do the best for him himself, which is not ideal from a team perspective. I guess you can see where he's coming from. But yeah, he came really close to uh, to getting uh, Ocon at the end. So very, very, very close. But Scott, Alfa Romeo was also in the news this weekend with talk of a potential takeover by the Andretti organisation headed by Michael Andretti. So that's the organisation that runs Andretti Autosport in IndyCar. So what do you know about that? Yeah, this is a, it's quite a fun quite a fun story. Um, be, be, be quite cool for the famous Andretti name to be coming back to, to Formula One, this time as a... Uh, as a, a team owner entrant, I'm not really sure how you'd want to characterise it. The 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 basically, it's an effort to buy a majority stake in Sauber's controlling company. So, uh, the if the numbers are, are accurate that we're we're hearing, it would give them an 80 percent share in uh, Islero Investments, which owns Sauber Motorsport and Sauber Engineering. So they'd they'd run the F1 team. Basically, uh, Andretti's been eyeing a chance to get into F1 for 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 quite some time, and I think he's been pushing. Uh, Sauber to sell for, for for quite some time as well. Um, there's a there's a few few unclear bits exactly where the money's come from. I think at I think at least part of it has come from the Andretti Acquisition Corporation that was created earlier this year. There's a suggestion that uh, Andretti's IndyCar sponsor Gainbridge, which backs Colton Herta's car, 
is involved and that's led to suggestions that Herta could uh, make a sensational switch from IndyCar to, to Formula One. Uh, so it's very interesting. I think this could move quite quickly. We'll, we'll probably get more details in the coming weeks. Uh, there's a suggestion that there will be pretty big talks between Andretti and uh, Sauber's owners at, um, at the US Grand Prix at Cota. Um, so I think it's going to come down to what exactly Sauber's owners want to do because they kind of fell into owning this team by accident. The um, the 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 Swedish money came into the team initially as in the form of sponsorship of Marcus Ericsson and then effectively ended up assuming a chunk of Sauber's debts, bailing them out of more and more trouble. And then I guess eventually sort of debts transferred into team ownership because they were the only ones that were able to bail the team out entirely. But owning the F1 team, don't know if it really fits with that sort of investment group's wider portfolio. Finn Rousing, who is one of the the is basically the main person behind it. Um, he's a big F1 fan. I think he wants to remain peripherally peripherally involved, which is why I think we're hearing this eighty percent sale uh because that then allows rousing to sort of hand off the team keep involved make a bit of money long term if the value of the team is there um and they've sort of been looking at whether they can sell or should sell this team but a bit on the quiet for, for for some time now so let's see what they decide if they do decide that this is the best way forward then i think the deal could probably be wrapped up fairly quickly and who knows let's see if it's done in place for anything to happen in 2022 um, if they don't decide to sell, that might well be because they've decided that actually they've got their own business that can be done by owning the t- owning the team completely, and that could you know that that could be something to do with you know signing Guan Yu Zhou is uh, uh, as Valtteri Bottas's teammate for for 2022, and then try and you know target the Chinese market to do a lot of business out there. So it's so a couple of routes for the the Sauber ownership team to to go down and I think we'll we'll find out pretty quickly what path it is they want to take. Yeah, and as you alluded to it's a good time to get involved in a Formula 1 team and it'd be great to have uh, Andretti involved in F1. So let's see how that unfolds over the coming weeks. Mark Yuki Tsunoda, we did mention earlier, he had a decent run in qualifying, had to use the softs to make Q3 when everyone else was on mediums, but did a decent job and then did that good job with Hamilton. But then of course he threw away his chance of points with a spin. He, he never ceases to frustrate, does he? No, I think he made progress this weekend, though. Um, it's, not, um, it's not the full, um, the full fat Sonoda that um, we, we saw in Bahrain in his debut, um, which was uh, very impressive. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, I think his, his defense of, his play, of the place from Hamilton was... Um, good it was you know he didn't put a foot wrong there and uh, he was quite stern in how he handled that and you know that, that would be a, a perfect high pressure situation in which uh, to make a mistake and he, he didn't and uh, you know ironically he made the mistake later on when uh, it probably wasn't so much pressure on but uh yeah it's still <laughs> you just want him to um have a reset really and have a clean weekend and uh, begin to build back up to uh, achieving his potential. So, yeah, I think a lot of this is just the uh, empty data banks getting filled in. Um, but in the meantime, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it takes, um, 
does knock a driver's confidence when uh, when it keeps going wrong like this. And it, it's not. I wouldn't say it's a disastrous weekend for him because his pace was quite respectable, and sometimes it hasn't been. Um, here it was, but it's still yeah. He's yeah. There's still there's still a way to go yet. Yeah, certainly confidence seems to be the big thing for him. I had a chat with him earlier in the weekend and he was talking about that being a problem. And it was notable that he was at his happiest on Friday when the car was quite understeery, whereas Gasly was unhappy at that point. And then Gasly was happy on Saturday when the car was a little bit more alive and lively and gave him that rotation he wanted and Sonoda wasn't so happy. So again, that speaks of the relative lack of confidence. Uh, Scott, normally it's Williams drivers, specifically George Russell, that we enthuse about from the lower-ranked teams, but George Russell made a mistake in the last corner in Q2 that cost him a certain Q3 place, and that condemned him to a quiet race deep in the midfield. But Mick Schumacher did catch the eye by reaching Q2 before being clobbered by Alonso on lap two. What do you make of that incident? Uh, well, it was a slam-dunk penalty for, for Alonso, wasn't it? It was just a little bit of... Uh, overzealousness I think after being frustrated by what happened to him at turn one with Gasly so yeah just a rare error in battle from from Fernando's racecraft has been superb this year um and and really unfortunate for Mick who was actually putting quite a brave face on it post-race he was uh basically saying well there's nothing I can do about it now so there's no point in um, being too upset uh, about it but he did admit that you know there was a bit of lost experience there the chance to run um, in the midfield and even if he'd have regressed to 19th anyway because of just the Haas's fundamental pace deficit uh, he would have at least been able to have a, a slightly different race at least in the in in the first stint and the, the real the real shame is that he didn't get the chance to do that and 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 see what was capable of. As we've said a couple of times, it was a it was a pretty stagnant race um, throughout the field. So it's not to say that he would have um, beaten a bunch of bigger teams, but he could have run there for quite a while. It would have been very beneficial because chances to run higher than eighteenth or nineteenth on merit don't come around very often in a car like the Haas this year. So it's a shame, especially because. He did such a good job in, in in qualifying and to have that basically cancelled out and then some Im- almost immediately in the Grand Prix through no fault of his own was just, um, yeah, it wasn't the reward that he deserved what he'd done on Saturday. Yeah, it's been a bit of an up and down season for him, but he's had some, some good bright moments and this was uh, certainly one of them. Uh, Mark, we should have a quick look at the track because there was so much interest in this topic uh, given the troubles there last year. Uh, Niall Boyle asked if you can explain how the track has evolved over the past 12 months and how that works with new track surfaces. It's a complex question, but it's worth a, a, a very quick overview, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, last year they, um, the, 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 the surface had already been down for 10 days when the, um, when Formula 1 arrived there. So you get all the you know, the, the oils coming up from the bitumen or and it, the 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 tire is basically just floating on the top of it. It's not getting a it's not getting a bite because it's got that you know, sort of greasiness in between the the tire surface and that of the track. And um, that obviously just gets weathered away over a, a period of months. So that straight away that that it was already going to be, um, you know, a lot better. You would you would imagine. Um, but they 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 water blasted it as well shortly before before the weekend, and uh, that was. You know, I'm, I'm sure a, a big part of it, and it went from being the least grippy track of last year to the grippiest track this year. Then, um, even in the wet, the drivers were saying it's it's almost like 
driving in the in the dry. It's got so much grip, and this was, um, you know, I, I think the drivers really enjoyed it because it's a fantastic layout that circuit, um, and, and it was sort of wasted last year because because of that lack of grip. As this year, I think um, they all got to really experience it fully and get all the the loadings that it it it, it you know that it, that it generates on us. So I think um, it did it a, a big favour. Yeah, that, uh, that water blasting process, certainly Pirelli felt that made the difference. They felt that the roughness of the circuit was the same as last year, but the grip was way higher. So that's the, the kind of mechanism at, at play there. But it's, uh, yeah, certainly a much more worthy Grand Prix circuit uh, this year. And even though it didn't quite produce as, as storied a race, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting one and created plenty of questions. Thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there. Mark Hughes' race analysis will be uh, up there on Monday. My driver ratings, which I shall be heading off to work on now. Scott's always got some excellent stuff to, uh, to, to have a read of on a Monday and indeed every day of the week. Check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, and have a look at our YouTube channel as well. Well, we've got a two-week gap now before we head off to Austin for the United States Grand Prix, the first of six races that will decide this fantastic world championship battle. We'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. Formula One.